Well, happy Resurrection Sunday, everybody. It's so good to be with you once again in your homes. Uh, this is a very special day. This is the day that Jesus Christ was risen from the grave. And all people all over the world right now are celebrating this, this event because it is the greatest event to ever happen in human history. And that's, that's the reason that we come together as a church because we don't have a God that is dead in a tomb somewhere, but He is risen and He is alive. And we're so grateful that we can celebrate that with you even though we're not here in person once again. As always, we miss you so badly. But uh, we're grateful that the presence of God is right there with you in your home as we get into the Word together this morning. Now, I want to speak to you specifically, obviously, about Jesus Christ and His resurrection. I want to preach a message to you called Resurrection Life. And if we, if we can, I just want to begin by reading the story uh, of Easter and, and that, that resurrection morning, that Sunday morning. And that's it. it begins in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. I want to read that with you, and then we will pray together. But Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, it reads, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene. Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. I want you to pray with me, if you will. Father, we're just so grateful this morning for the fact that you sent Jesus on a rescue mission for us to die for our sins. And that, Lord, he came and he conquered sin. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. And we believe, we confess as believers this morning, God, that Jesus Christ is risen. He, he conquered death and he is alive now forevermore. And Lord, we're grateful for that promise, God, because it gives us a hope that is secure in dark and difficult times, just like the ones that we're living in, where there's such uncertainty, where there's such fear, where there's such doubt. God, we have a hope that is secure because we believe that Jesus is alive, and because of that, he offers us that eternal life. And Lord, this morning, we pray just for a release of your presence and your peace into every home, Lord God. We, we continue to pray and believe, Lord, that, that through this thing that we're going through with this coronavirus, this sickness, this fear, God, that is infecting our world, Lord, that you would just release resurrection life into our communities and throughout our nation, Lord, that you would bring healing and deliverance from every sickness, disease, and torment, Lord Jesus, and that people would hear the gospel this morning across the churches globally, Lord God, and many people would come and, and turn to you, Lord Jesus, and put faith in the work that you've accomplished. God, we're believing you for miracles right now throughout our world. We're believing you, God, to do things beyond what we can even ask or imagine in our own hearts. God, you're able to do what science cannot do when it comes to the issues that we deal with. And that's proven most clearly in the fact that you were resurrected, God. And we believe in that resurrection life. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would begin to impart that resurrection life to us this morning as we unpack your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now... I want to talk to you about resurrection life and what that means, but I, I, I want to deal with a few different topics this morning that are a little bit different than the way I would normally preach, but 
here's the thing. Down through the years, if, if you really read and look into it, there's been a lot of debate and controversy about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I remember even last year, a lot of times in the Christian world, especially like in southeastern Kentucky, we just take things that are written in the Bible for granted. But what I'm finding is more and more, even in the Bible Belt, there are people that are highly influenced by the intellectual world and atheism and all these different things. And they question things like the resurrection of Jesus. They doubt these things. And on occasion, even we as Christians will doubt and question whether or not these things have happened at all. And even in the church, I remember last year on Easter, there was there's a very popular uh, Christian artist who, who made a tweet and he said, Jesus is risen with an exclamation point. And then after it, he said, at least metaphorically anyway. As if to say, we don't really believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But we, we believe it's a metaphor for something different. And, and it, it, people will say, even uh, it's becoming, uh, even people that profess Jesus are beginning to say things like, well, you know, Jesus was probably a historical figure. Maybe he was a kind man. In his heart, he was a revolutionary. And, and he was tired of the oppression of Rome. And he tried to bring a revolt out of love. And, and he demonstrated this love and this kindness to people. But at the end of the day, just like power always does, it came and it killed Jesus and he died and he was crucified. But see, his disciples loved him so much and they wanted to believe what he was saying was true so much that they sort of, they took his body away and they started this myth and this fable. And then they started telling all these stories that he would heal the sick, that he would raise the dead, that he would do all these things because they were creating a myth. They were creating a legend, something to give them hope in these difficult times in life that we all have because we're all looking for that hope. And so a lot of people will argue, we'll see it. It wasn't really, really, it didn't really happen like that, but, but people just, they, they created this story. But my question is, is that the way that it really happened? Can we believe uh, what Scripture really says? And here's the thing, there are 2.3 billion people at least celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to ask the question, are these people just really nice people, but actually deluded for believing in a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus? Or is what we're staking our entire lives on true? Did it really happen? Of course, I, I believe that it really happened. But again, like I said, I, I'm wrestling with things that I see and things that I read. Because even recently I read an article where the president of Union Theological Seminary was being interviewed. And as she was interviewed, they asked her, Do you believe in the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus? And here was her response. She said, When you look in the Gospels... The stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Of course, that's not true. But those who claim to know whether or not it has happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that ultimate love in our life cannot be crucified and killed. Now, this is, this is uh, it sounds like a good statement, but we're talking about a people who, a person who is the leader of an educational system for, for Christian people or people who at least profess Jesus. And she says, you know what, at the end of the day, uh, the resurrection's not that important. What, it, what, what the resurrection does is it symbolizes that love can ultimately not be killed. And this is a philosophy that's infiltrating the church. And they're saying, you know, the resurrection doesn't necessarily matter. Heaven and hell doesn't necessarily matter. What matters at the end of the day is that everyone embraces their own truth. And, 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 and at the end of the day, love is what really matters. Some, some kind of vague expression or definition of love. And, and we can just sort of set the resurrection to the side because some people have a difficulty dealing with that and whether or not it actually happened or whether or not it's actually true. But I'm here to tell you that we believe as Christian people throughout history that we have a God that is not dead but is risen. The resurrection is not just important, it is essential. And the meaning of life, the purpose of life loses everything unless Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That's where we stake our hope. That's where we put our faith. We believe that Jesus Christ is God, that He came, that He died on a cross, that that he was raised again on the third day, literally, physically, bodily. He was raised again from the dead. That stone was rolled away. He was no longer in his tomb because he was living and he was breathing once again. But see, even then, even early on, the Apostle Paul dealt with many who denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People have been denying the resurrection since the beginning of this entire thing. And here's what, here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 9. He said, now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's meaningless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, Paul is saying, all the apostles are saying, man, the, the resurrection is not a metaphor. It's literal. It's not something that, that, that is just sort of unimportant that you can set to the side. He's saying if you don't believe in the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are just wasting your time because you are missing the entire point of what Jesus came to do. There's a reason why Easter is such a big deal. There's a reason why people celebrate Christmas and Easter because there's something innate in it that says there's something broken and messed up with the world and the only thing that can fix it is if God comes and conquers death because we all know at the end of the day that that thing, that longing in our heart, what we're afraid of, the reason coronavirus is freaking people out is because it brings death. It's our greatest enemy. It's our greatest enemy and we could not conquer it. It was coming for all of us and we had to have somebody to save us from that. And apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no savior, there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness, and there's no hope of eternal life. We're just silly fools believing in some kind of myth trying to feel better about the fact that ultimately we're all going to die and it's all going to come to an end. That's what, that's what we would be with. And so you got to wrestle with this at some point in your life. I, I hope this morning that somehow this message gets to somebody who doesn't believe, who does wrestle with this truth, because I understand that you can wrestle with it. This is a hard truth. Everything in our science, every, it defies logic. But see, we have a God that defies logic. And that's a wonderful thing because that means that He can interrupt your way of life. He can interrupt who you are and He can change everything drastically and suddenly. And that's what I'm believing God is going to do in people's lives this morning. We've got to give this thing more careful consideration. 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say in, in chapter 15, verse 24 through 26, he says, I love this. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. See, Jesus and the apostles never sentimentalized death or taught that death was something from God, as if God just put a death on everybody and he had, he had all that in his control. No matter of fact, when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, God himself comes to the tomb of his friend and doesn't treat it flippantly as if it's nothing. Jesus weeps. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. What's he saying? He's saying that God weeps over death. He's not happy about the fact that there's a sickness invading people's lives and killing them before their time. He did not design us for sickness and death. That is a result of the fall. An enemy has done this. An enemy has entered in and infected humanity with the principle of something called sin. And let me tell you something, God hates death. That's the reason he called it an enemy. The scripture doesn't say... Death is something that God brings. It says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And I don't know about you, but it gives me great comfort to know that my God, who is love, does not like death. Doesn't Matter of fact, he despises death. And he came, he viewed it as an enemy, and he said death is an enemy, and the last enemy that is going to be destroyed is death. I'm telling you, when you, when you feel that pain inside because you've lost someone, I've talked to people that have dealt with terrible things just this week. They've dealt with lost loved ones. They've dealt with miscarriages. And when you go through that, there is a pain on the inside of you that it just it begins to turn you inside out. You feel that. And that, that is sin at work. That's, that's, that's death at work. And it's not because you've done anything wrong. It's, we are all subject to this law of sin and death. And we're broken. And we realize, man, something is going wrong. And I promise you, the same feeling that you have in your heart when you feel that loss, God has that same feeling. He doesn't look at death. And it doesn't look at pain and suffering as if, as if it's something that he doesn't, he doesn't care about. Or, no, he entered into it. He said, I feel the same way you feel. I weep over that pain. I weep over that suffering. I weep over that. And, and so, so we, we believe as Christians, we insist on the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the reasons, let me give you some points here. The first reason that Christians insist on the resurrection of Jesus is because, number one, it reveals God's provision 
for our problem. We got a problem as human beings. We've got issues. And anybody who doesn't recognize and say, boys, something's not right, nobody sits back and says, things are good here. Like, everything is awesome. No, we recognize every day that there's something that's just not quite right. We're missing something. Even on our best days, in Luke 24, 5, just as we read, it says, Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, the angel said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. The angels were saying, look, you got to remember that he told you that he was going to have to be handed over into the hands of sinners and he was going to have to be crucified. Why? Because humanity had a problem. Sin had to be dealt with. Death had to be dealt with. He had to enter into sin. He had to enter into death because those were the two things looming over our head holding us in bondage. And he said, i got to go there because I've got to face sin head on. I've got to face death head on. Or in otherwise, in other, otherwise, y'all are going to stay where you're at, locked in to the brokenness that you're in. And I love it because Jesus in John 19.30, when he's on the cross, says when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, he said seven statements on the cross, Jesus did. This was one of them. He declared, it is finished while he was hanging on the cross. And the Greek word is tetelestai. It's a really cool word. I'm sure it started a tattoo movement whenever people first started and figured out, you know, that, 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 it was, that it was what it meant and stuff like that. So if you're planning on getting a tattoo, maybe that'd be a good one to get. Just a joke. So you never can tell about jokes whenever you're just speaking into a camera because it gives me no feedback. So, so uh, I, I don't know, but, but God bless you all this morning. Um, but it's tetelestai in the Greek, and it literally means it is finished. There is nothing else to be done. There's nothing else to be done. It's a complete work. It's a finished work. And this phrase, again, everything Jesus does is for a purpose. He's not just spitting out random stuff while he's on the cross. He's not just saying, oh, I'm about to die. It's no, he, he, it's a condensed symbol, which means that when he makes that one phrase, he's pointing to a whole picture. He's, he's bringing pieces of a puzzle together to, to symbolize what he's doing. And I want to give you, in his time, in the first century, Tetelestai had a broad range of meaning. And what Jesus is telling us, uh, this phrase was used among, if you put that slide up, this phrase was, was used first among servants. Now, there's actually, a, a, a document from, from years, even around Jesus' time years ago, where a father sent his son literally on a business trip to finish the family business in another city. And he had certain things that he did. And he told his son, he said, do not return home until you finish this business. And his son kept sending him letters back saying, this is going to take much longer than I thought, father. Can I come home? Can I come home? And the father said, no, son, you, you finish the business, then you return home. And finally, after a discourse back Back and forth through letters, the son finally sends the last letter. And on the letter, he writes, Tetelestai, it is finished. The business is done. Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission from heaven to do the Father's business. He does it, and on the cross, he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. I have finished your work, Father, and now I'm returning home to sit at the right hand of power and, and, and give all authority back to humanity that was lost. Secondly, this word Tetelestai was used among priests. Whenever they would bring the, the ritualistic lamb in for a sacrifice, the, the, the priest would search all over this lamb and, every, and very, analyze it in great detail. And he would look it over to see if the lamb was without spot, without blemish, worthy of a sacrificial offering. And when he noticed that there was no spot, no blemish, he would step back and he would say, Tetelestai. And he would say, it's a clean offering, ready to be sacrificed. And Jesus went as our high priest. And he knew that he was the only lamb of God that was without sin that could be offered as a perfect sacrifice. And when that perfect sacrifice was offered, there was no more sacrifices that need to be offered. He said, it is finished. It's a perfect work. Thirdly, artists in the first century used this word to tell a style often. And, and, and the way that they would use it is they would, they would have a, a, a sculptor would, would make a sculpture or an artist would have a painting. And when they would get done and, and finish every detail, they would step back and they would try to see if there was anything else that needed to be added, anything else that needed to be done. And finally, just under their breath, breath they would mumble. 
to telestai because it was a perfect work. And let me, let me tell you something. You are the workmanship of God. In the, in the Greek, it's your, you're his poem. In other words, when he comes into your life, he transforms your life. He says, that is a piece of art to me. And he steps back and he sees the work that he's doing in your life. And he says, to telestai, it's a good work. It's finished. Jesus has done everything that he needed to do in your life and in your, in your heart. You, God's, our redemption is God's art. We are his masterpiece. And that's a beautiful thing. Fourthly, merchants. Merchants would use the word uh, to tell us die. And, and this, this, this should make good sense to you. You know, me and my wife recently, we, 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 years ago, about 2015, we got her a new car when she got out of school. And we, you know, was paying this thing down, putting extra money on it. And we, we set out, we said, you know what? We're going to pay this thing off. Why? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but when you take a loan out, you don't own the thing. The bank owns it. You're a co-owner with them, right? So they, they just let you have it. I mean, I'm, I'm glad they don't come over and take use of what they actually own. Uh, but, but they own it and you're paying them off. But see, a merchant, what they would do is finally when you made that last payment, they would send you that bill and on it it would say, to Telestai, paid in full. There is no more payment that needs to be offered. Jesus was the full payment for your sin. And at the end, he says, to Telestai, there is no other payments that need to be made. It is finished. And lastly, I think I like this one the best, but it was used among prisoners. When somebody would be imprisoned in the first century and, and, and they, they would put a lot of times a, a certificate it on outside the wall and nail it to the wall and it would be the charges for the crimes that they had committed but not only that their punishment so that when people walked by the cell or wherever they were being held they could see what they did and what was the penalty for that now when they served their time they would write to telestai on that certificate it was done it was it was finished it was complete and they would give that certificate to the man that was placed in prison or the woman that was placed in prison so that they could keep it so if they were to be tried again or somebody came back to accuse them of the same crime, they could present it and say, to Telestai, I don't, I, you can't imprison me any longer. And I'm telling you, for some people, what you need to do on this Easter Sunday is you need to tell the devil to Telestai. It's already been paid in full. You've got nothing in me anymore. You cannot imprison me any longer. You can't keep me in bondage any longer. It was finished. My Lord died for my sins. He paid the full payment and he has been risen from the dead. And therefore, I don't have any more payments to make. Amen. See, when you talk about these things and you start talking about sin and Jesus dealing with our sin, for modern folks, that's just depressing. And another nice movement in the church today is, is to just not really address sin. Don't talk about that because it makes people uncomfortable. Let me tell you something. If you don't address sin, you're going to remain in your sin and in your brokenness. That's why Jesus came, to save his people from their sins, from their brokenness. And, and on a deep level, i got to be honest with you, like even for me in the beginning, there was a lot of things that I didn't want to let go of in my life. I didn't want that resurrection life because I I wanted to hold on to the sin that I was still holding on to. And when people confronted me on these issues and said, well, you know, the Christian life is about living this way. I didn't like it. I rejected it. I said, well, y'all are hateful. That's not, that's not right. You shouldn't be calling me out on that stuff. You shouldn't judge me. But see, Jesus is trying to say, no, you got an infection. you got a disease that's worse than the coronavirus. You've got something in your heart that is eating you alive from the inside out that's separating you from God. And God loves you so much. He wants to have that relationship with you. He needs to deal with that issue. And we deal with even on another level, there's things that I've done before I got saved that I, I felt such shame and such guilt for. And the Lord is saying, see, I, I, I've come to deal with that. But when we talk about sin, we're not only just talking about your acts, what you've done wrong or things that you've done bad. We're talking about a principle that is at work in all of humanity. When we talk about the law of sin and death, we're talking about the reason a coronavirus can even exist in the world in the first place. It's called the law of sin and death. It's at work. And it doesn't, we're, we've, we've all been under it. We're, we're all subject to this law. But see, there's a law called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that is greater, that plays the trump card on the law of sin and death. And that's what we have to look to in this, in, in this moment. That's what it's all about. Jesus on the cross dealt with the fundamental problem of our sin and brokenness. And that's the first reason that Christians insist on His resurrection. But secondly, the reason that we insist on His resurrection is because it reveals God's power over our enemies. Number two in your notes, it reveals God's power over our enemies. The angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And I love this because, again, just as I said before, deep down all of us 
in our hearts we know that something is fundamentally wrong. And here's what we wrestle with. And that one thing that we wrestle with and that I know you'll be able to relate to is the fact that our bodies are dying and decaying. And we wrestle with, the, with that physicality. I mean, do you understand that, that if death did not exist, age would not exist? There'd be no, thing, no such thing as gray hair or wrinkles or my knees giving out when I try to jump now because I'm 33 years old. Like the, none, none of that would even exist. We would not be afraid of the fact that we're getting older. Well, you, even in our lives, what we do is we try to compare ourselves like because we, 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 we gauge our success and we look at other people and compare ourselves and we say, well, he's a little bit older than me. I still got time, you know. And we, we look at it as time. Well, I, I, at least I'm still a little bit younger. Now I've still got time to do things because we're, we're trying to run away from the fact that death is already at work in us. We're already dying. We're, it's at work in us. We're aging and it's, it's affected us. And, and the, these things have broken us down. And, you know, and, and people have tremendous shame over their bodies. People make jokes over what we look like and different things like that. And a lot of, a lot of things, it's, it's just death at work in us. And, and people will spend a lot of money to make themselves look better. I mean, you get Botox shots and all kinds of things. What are you doing? You're trying to reverse death. You're trying to run from something that is, that is at work in your body that you cannot possibly run from. And we live in a denial of this death. I mean, if we honestly thought about the fact that we were going to die and how we were going to die, and we spent a lot of time meditating on that as a world, I think uh, psychologically, eventually, we would break down, we'd freak out, and we would, just, we, would, we would not be able to take the pressure because fear of death is one of the greatest things that we deal with as human beings and we try to deny it we push it off we, we try to inject botox we lie about our age we try to remain strong and 17 year old 17 years old forever we we dye our hair we do anything we can to seem a little bit younger because we're trying to run from death in hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 the passion translation it says since all his children have flesh and blood so jesus became human to fully identify with us. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser who holds against us the power of death. By embracing death, Jesus sets free those who live their entire lives in bondage to the tormenting dread of death. Jesus wanted to set you free from the fear of death, so he went into it undeserving of death and blew it up from the inside. He went into death, entered into it for you so that he could conquer the fear of death in your life and give you hope for resurrection life in the future. Now, I was reading something that was really interesting this week. As I, started, I read some crazy stuff this week, y'all, just studying this message, talking about death, because there's so much that people write about death and that aren't even Christians. And uh, there was, there's one thing, a psychologist, there was a few psychologists, and they came up with this thing called terror management theory. And they talk about how we manage our terror because of the fact that we have death. And a lot of times it's subconscious. We're all, we know that, man, our death is really just around the corner. Any of us could die at any moment. That's crazy to think about in, itself, in and of itself. And it happens randomly, tragically. All of a sudden, it just, it just takes people. And, and, and there's an innate terror on the inside of us. And they said psychologically what we do is we try to manage that. We try to cope with it. We try to figure out ways to deal with that. And, you know, it's funny because if you look at, like, old churches, I think, a lot of old churches, and used to even, even in maybe the churches y'all used to be at, like, that people would, now they make fun of it because people would sing these very morose, sad songs, and they would sing about death and slipping over to heaven and into Beulah land. And the, 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 here's the truth. Maybe that was sad. Maybe there needed to be a little bit more celebration in the church. But at the same time, used to they had cemeteries by the church as if to say, y'all need to be thinking about death and y'all need to be thinking about those who have gone before you. And now in the modern church, all we have is coffee shops. My point is, what are we saying by what we have? We, maybe those things were a little bit more sad, but here's the thing. We need to come to an understanding that death is coming for us all. And it is the central uh, brokenness of humanity. It is why humanity is in the shape that it's in. And there is no way out except through Jesus Christ. There's no way out except through Jesus Christ. Now, here's what these said. These guys are not Christian, but here's what they said. He said, there's a book called Immortality, The Quest to Live Forever, and How It Drives Civilization. And this guy, Stephen Cave, he said, there's four strategies 
in, the ter- in their terror management fear of death. And he said, basically, people are trying to live forever. We, we got to go. I'm trying to live forever. And he says, the first way that we try to live forever is through legacy. In other words, he's saying, because we know we're going to die and we know everything is coming to an end in a sense. He says, we're going to try to be successful. We're going to try to be the best that we can be. We're going to try to accomplish as much as we possibly can because at the end of the day, we want to be a legend. When we die, man, we want our names to go beyond and say, you know what, you remember that guy? That guy was something else. But the problem is now there are about 7 billion people in the world and that population constantly increases. And half of the population are 16-year-olds who are so self-absorbed that they post everything about themselves on the Internet. It's going to be a hard competition for you, friends. And even when you do your best, here's the problem in this world. we got a running joke right here in the church. Even when you do your best and you produce something amazing, somebody else did it better. And it is exhausting to try to become a legend, to try to live forever throughout legacy. Because guess what? You you die anyway, and you don't know whether people are celebrating you or not. It's exhausting, but we do it. And secondly, he said, we try try to live forever through our children. In other words, we say, you know what? I know I can't live forever, but if I can just pass something on to my children and and their children. And and listen, this is a good thing. We want to do that. As Christian people, we, we want to do that. We want to pass it on to our children. But even that is sketchy. I mean, some children go wayward. You don't know. Uh, Nowadays, one of the things that I've noticed, even as a young pastor, is we, we have some folks that are like 50 years old and beyond. Man, they honor me just because I'm a pastor. Younger folks, you know, they, they, they do too, but not, not not near as much. Why? Because the generations after us are losing that sense of honor. And so we're, I don't know how well that's going to go for you if you're going that route on, on, on how that's... A, thirdly, he says the way that we try to live forever is through biology and technology. Now, I read some crazy stuff on this, but people are really... I mean, people are so crazy, they believe that somehow, like in the year 2040, you're going to be able to drop robots in your bloodstream, and it's just going to fix everything, and you're going to be able to live to like 120, 130 years old. People are believing crazy stuff. You can become sort of like half robot, half man in order to live longer because people are trying to defeat death. There's a guy, I think it's his name his name written down here, Peter Thiel. He apparently is the owner of PayPal. He's worth about $2.3 billion. He made this statement... He said, death is a problem that can be solved. And I would say, you know what, Peter Till, you're right. It's not just a problem that can be solved. It is a problem that has been solved. On the cross of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection, it has been solved. But this man, along with other people, they will actually inject the blood of younger men in order to increase their energy levels and try to defy aging. One, one, I read where one liter of blood was about $8,000 and they will infuse blood into their system in order to try to get more energy and be like a younger man. They'll take young men's blood. That's pretty insane, isn't it? And we think, well, but, but all of us are doing it. We use face creams and different things like that or whatever. I mean, women may be more than men, but the point is we all are running from death, but it's coming after you. And lastly, he says, you know what? If you can't do it through those things, if you can't do it through legacy or your children or technology, he says, you got, your last ditch effort, he says, is a religious option. He said, because all religion essentially teaches the same thing, that if you're a good enough person, then you'll get a second shot. You'll get another shot at this thing. And he says, he says that, that, that might be a good effort, but at the end of the day, he says, you know, it's just, it's just not true. So you just need to try to be present and understand that all of it will be over soon. Can you imagine the despair, the hopelessness in that kind of living? Paul said, if that's the truth, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If everything just comes to an end, what is the meaning of being here in the first place? This cannot be right. Something is wrong. And I believe that there's only one thing that truly answers the question. Let me tell you about another, another book, A Brief History of Thought by a guy named Luke Ferry. This, this guy wrote this book. He surveyed almost every religion across a 2,000-year span and every philosophy, and he, and he tried to survey it to see what they thought, what they thought about life, what they thought about death, what they thought about the meaning of life. And here's what he says in this quote. He says, There's actually nothing like the claims of Christianity. And this man's not a Christian. He says, It's the only religion where death has been defeated by love. I love that statement. The Christian response to mortality for believers, at least, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but to beat death. 
It is this new definition of love found at the heart of the new doctrine of salvation which finally turns out to be stronger than death. So he surveys every religion and he says, if I'm really dealing with the issue of death, he says the Christians have got it figured out as far as the best answer, the most effective answer to what we're dealing with because they believe that God has came and conquered death and is presenting you with eternal life. And he says that makes sense, but yet he says in the same book, that's just too good to be true. Let me tell you something. The gospel that we preach, it is... It is. It feels like it's too good to be true, but folks, it is true, and that is why it is the best news in the world. We believe that God loved humanity so much that He saw us in our brokenness and sin. He saw sin rampant, sickness, death, taking over everything, and He intruded in. He broke in, and He came, and He delivered healing. He delivered redemption. He set people free from oppression, and He was pointing them to a coming kingdom. And then He went into death, and He conquered death, and He said, you know what? Through my death and my resurrection, I will raise you up from your own death and give you a resurrection and I will promise you eternal life in that resurrection because of what I've done. It's, we get to live forever. That's the, that is the crazy claim of Christianity that we believe to be absolutely true. That at the end of the day, this life is, is but a vapor, but see, what you experience here is not even near the fullness that God wants you to experience. He plans to restore you, to restore your body, to restore the loved ones that have went on before you in Christ, to raise them from the dead, to restore and replenish this earth and give you a glorified body where there are no more viruses, no more sickness, no more death, and you get to live forever. And every bit of peace, every bit of joy that you ever have experienced in this world is going to be magnified times infinite. And that's what we get to experience. Man, that, I mean, I, even when you face suffering and death, that's the thing that gives you hope. That's the thing that reaches in and says, yes, I, I, I've got to cling to this because if I don't have this, I've got nothing else. I'm only going to suffer and experience pain and we're gonna, our, our loved ones are going to die right in front of our eyes and then I'm going to gasp my last breath and it's all for nothing. It all comes to an end. Now we've got, we believe in something far beyond that and that's why the resurrection of Jesus is such an amazing thing. I want you to put this on the screen, just one statement. Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. Cancer does not have the last say. A miscarriage does not have the last say. Coronavirus does not have the last say. People may die, but we know one who raises people from the dead. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection means, man, I feel this, that there, it means that the worst thing is never the last thing. See, in our society, we sentimentalize death. We say things like, oh, they're in a better place. And even our governor, Andy, Andy Bashir, oh, they're in a better place. Let me tell you something. No, not, not, not everybody is necessarily in a better place. We believe that in Christ to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. But see, if there is no resurrection from the dead, all you've got is a decaying body that if you go and dig up, it's going to be a horrifying experience for you. They're in the grave. They're going to dust. Their, body, their bodies are decomposing. If there's no resurrection, there's nothing. There's no hope for a future. And we sentimentalize it and we go on. But see, Christians have a hope where they know there's something, there's something beyond this. And People, you know, they've done a lot of research about what has happened with Jesus' body. And if you really look into it, Honestly, there's so much proof and people that have looked into it, that you, there's people that have written books because they started out as atheists and then when they, when they really go into a pursuit of looking into the historical facts surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection, it's almost like you would have to have more faith to not believe it because it would have been the greatest hoax in human history because you've got to get hundreds of people to, to basically say the same thing and, 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 and for, it's, just, it's, just, it's crazy. But that's not what I, I'm not trying to get into that. I'm not trying to prove it to you because I want to talk about something that's greater than pr proving it factually. See, what's so powerful about the resurrection is not that I could sit here and prove it to you factually. I probably never could. But here's the reason that I believe in the resurrection so much is because when I put faith in Jesus Christ and I repented of my sins and I began to seek the face of Jesus Christ, there was an internal resurrection that happened on the inside of me. 
I may have, have not believed. There were some things that I wrestled with. There were some things that I wrestled with whether or not God was real. And I wrestled with whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead or if the miracles happened. I, I wrestled with that stuff. But at the end of the day, I sought God. I studied some of those things. But the reason I believe in miracles, the reason I believe in resurrection life, the, the reason I have this hope and this promise secure in my own heart is because I used to be a dead man in my sins. And Jesus Christ came on the inside of me and raised a dead man to life. I'm not the same person that I used to be. And see, the greatest thing about this resurrection is it can begin in your heart now. That's why when they talk about it, they call it being born again. You feel like everything has changed. Everything is transformed. You're not a perfect person yet, but you realize Jesus has done something on the inside of you and you have experienced this resurrection life on the inside of you. And that is a foretaste of the resurrection that you will experience when Jesus changes you in the moment of a twinkling of an eye, when you have to come up out of the grave, when he calls your name. He's saying, you got a foretaste because you know I've already changed your heart. You're a new creation. Something is different. And Jesus wants to give you that internal resurrection right now. He wants you to have that internal resurrection right now. But see, you've you got to understand this. You will die. Think about that. I wonder if you ever have thought about that. You will die. You go, you're either going to die or Jesus is going to return. And if you are a Christian, the Scripture says that you will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This, this imperishable body, this body of mortality will be clothed in immortality. And all of a sudden in a moment, either you're going to die and you're going to be raised from the dead or you're going to change in the moment in the twinkling of an eye when the Lord returns. But you've got to consider that. You've got to think about that because you've got to know when death is knocking at your door, when this world is breaking, I, I cannot promise you today that this world is... I would love to be able to say the corona... I mean, there's, there's people out there saying this is going to end, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. I wish I could say that. I wish I had a prophetic word for you, but I, I, I can't. The only thing I can say is that this world as it is is passing away. But those who do the will of God, the scripture says, will live forever. So don't put your hope in this world. You've got to solidify the anchor of your hope in something far greater. Here, here's my last point. Number three, we insist on the resurrection of Jesus because it reveals what God is actually after. Now, some people, you know, even when you talk to people about the Bible, they're conflicted with it. They're like, you know what? I mean, you've read the, you've read the Bible, right? Like there's, I mean, I've had people sit down beside me and they'd be like, you've read the Bible, right? And I'm, yeah, I've read it. Uh, and, 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 and they say, well, you know, I mean, Jonah and the whale and this stuff, and even Jesus raised from the dead. I mean, it, just, it just doesn't make much sense. If he was really raised from the dead, I mean, I have a hard time believing in him. Why wouldn't he just make it more apparent? Why wouldn't he just make it? And I say, you know, you, you got a good point because if you think about it, when Jesus is raised from the dead, he starts to deal with people. And if you read the story, it's, it's not how I would write it, which the Bible never is how I would write it. I mean, there's some crazy things in there if you read it. But God's not interested in writing it the way that you want it written. He's writing it in the way that it is. And when he writes it, you've got this woman that he comes to. Jesus comes to Mary Magdalene. She's got seven demons that were cast out of her. She's the first one to see Jesus after he's resurrected. And when she sees him, uh, she doesn't even know who he is. She doesn't even recognize him. And that's interesting because, because it's not a powerful story. This woman goes back. She's full of doubt. She's telling the other disciples. And... It just doesn't make any much sense. There's not much power. And then he comes to Peter, and Peter has denied Jesus three times. And he says, Lord, I, I'll never deny you. But three minutes later, he's denying him. And then Jesus shows up on the beach, and, and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter's already been fishing. He's already given up hope. And he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. And essentially he's saying, your failure, Peter, does not cancel your destiny. You've got to get back to your calling. And you see this again. He goes and he deals with Thomas. And Thomas, man, he, well, they call him Doubting Thomas, dude. This guy had a problem with optimism. He saw the worst in everything. A lot of times we do that. He saw the worst in everything. He, he, he doubted all the time. He said, they said... Thomas, I'm telling you, we saw Jesus resurrected. He's raised from the dead. Thomas said, I only believe it if I get to put my hands in his wounds. And mercifully, Jesus shows up and appears to him. And he puts his hands in his wounds. And he says, my Lord and my God. 
Now, why, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because I'll be honest with you. If I was God and I was just raised from the dead, I would probably, first place I would go would not be to any of my 12 disciples who are in an obscure place locked up in a room. I would go to Rome first. I would show up at Caesar's house and I'd be like, Caesar, you go around here telling people you're Lord. Let's take this thing to the auditorium. You know what I'm saying? Like that, That's what I would do. I would, I would demonstrate before all Rome that I am God. I would float, I would emanate glory, and I would say, I am Lord of all, and I would coerce them, and all the empire would be saved. But see, this, that's the very mentality that Jesus came to destroy, that coercive power. He says, no, I'm going to reveal my power by loving my friends, by demonstrating to them, by trying to help those that are struggling with believing in me. See, I would have went to Athens, man. I would have went down there where all the philosophers were talking and I would have said, y'all know this Logos you're talking about, this divine heavenly principle? Well, here I am. And I would have done miracles and read their mail and told them everything. And I would have, ter- I would have got the whole world saved in an instant. Why didn't Jesus do this? Because he's about something else. and he's, he's, God has never been about coercing human beings. He will force no human being to pursue him. Love is about choice, always has been. And when he wired love into this world, he wired free will into this world. And see, part of the reason, even for us, if Jesus had done that, well, we'd have no work to do. He wouldn't be able to invite us into that love. And he's saying the same way I went to my friends to mercifully love them and try to help them believe is the same way you need to be going to your friends to mercifully love them and try to help them to believe, to show them that kindness in their brokenness. Jesus shows up as two believers are going on the road to Emmaus. And I love the picture because in Luke 24, literally they said, we did have have hope they're hopeless at this point everything they'd put their hope in was gone they're walking away from Jesus in unbelief and as they're walking away from Jesus Jesus pulls up beside them to walk with them man I believe that with all my heart I want you to pray that with me I believe right now that Jesus is actually pulling up beside of people that are walking away from him right now and he's gonna talk to them he's gonna deal with their heart he's gonna start to invite them back into his love to say I want to bring resurrection life into your soul and show you who I am and demonstrate my love to you but see here's the thing if we look at our world today there's a lot of hopelessness and like I said I know the coronavirus is one thing we thankfully live in a county and in a place where there's where there's not much of that going on and I pray and I want you to pray with me that that thing stays back I I pray that it comes to an end everywhere I believe, I, I believe, I believe that's, that's the prayer that we should pray. But more importantly, we should be praying that God works in people's hearts, that they, that they come to the knowledge of the truth, that they turn to the Lord during this time. But see, we live in a place where there's, where there's hopelessness. And I bet there was no greater hopelessness in the lives of Jesus' disciples than on the day that he died and those two days in between his resurrection when they thought that all their hopes and dreams had come to an end. They were hopeless. The thing about Resurrection Sunday, the thing about Easter is, is the resurrection is sudden, it is abrupt, and it breaks into your world, and it flips science on its head, it flips logic on its head. It is a miracle that you cannot but believe because it's unbelievable otherwise. It's, 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 and that, and when God, we're talking about a God that wants to break in and bring resurrection life into your family, into your situation. I know you've dealt with pain. I know you've dealt with struggle and sorrow in the, in the last few weeks, and different things have gone on in your life but man there's a hope in Jesus Christ there's resurrection life and he wants to start to resurrect joy and love and peace in your heart right now and he's inviting you into that he's inviting us all into that resurrection life right now Jesus is announcing that your sin your shame it's been finished it's been paid for you can be forgiven just like it never happened and he's offering you eternal life and he's saying I'll walk with you right now I'll help you believe if you'll just take a step of faith. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to take a step of faith with me. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to receive communion. And if you don't have communion with you, if you don't have the elements, that's okay because I still want you to pray with me. I still want you to, by faith, commit your life to Jesus. Now, I was talking with a friend earlier. I believe believe God's going to do miracles if you would just believe Him. But I was talking to a friend earlier, and he was telling me about the sacrament, and, and he told me, he said, you know, did you, did you realize that the word sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentum? And it was an oath, it was an oath that the Romans participated in to their, to their as soldiers, they would commit to their, to their leader. 
And when they were taking the sacrament, so to speak, they were giving an oath that says, you know what, I'm going to follow you and I will follow your ways even unto death. And I'm telling you something, the good news about our leader, is we are the soldiers of Jesus, the soldiers of Christ. We're in the Lord's army, so to speak. But the good news about it, this is, is if we follow him into death, we also have that resurrection on the other side of that death. That's the promise that we have. So I want you to take this. And Father, I want you to pray with me. Father, we come to you right now. We're so thankful for the faith that you give us that you've imparted into our hearts this morning. And we confess, Lord Jesus, our sins to you. We repent of those sins. We turn to you, Lord. We need you, God. We're desperate for you. Our our nation, our world is desperate for you, Lord Jesus. But as individuals right now, we turn our hearts to you. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. And we confess, Lord, that we believe that you died on the cross for our sins, that your blood was shed for our forgiveness, Lord God, that your body in the stripes on your back, you took that for our healing. And we receive healing and we pray that healing be released throughout the world. But, Lord, we're thankful for that salvation. And, Lord, we believe you were raised from the dead on the third day. And we confess you as Lord. And because of that, we have this hope and this promise is secure in our lives of eternal life. We live forever. We conquer death. We will be raised to have a glorified body and we will be with you forever. And upon that faith, Lord, we take your body and we receive it in the name of Jesus. Just receive it where you're at. And this blood, the blood of the new covenant, Lord Jesus, we plead that blood right now where you're at. We plead it over our families over our children, over our homes, over our nation. Lord, move in us. Holy Spirit, invade our hearts right now by your blood. Bring resurrection life into my heart, into my family, into our community. God, bring dead things to life, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name we receive your blood. Amen. We love you all so much. We pray that you've been blessed on on this Resurrection Sunday. I pray that the Holy Spirit would just continue to be with you the rest of the day and forever. He is with you, but I pray that he would make this reality, this resurrection life real in your hearts. and, And you would just sense his presence and his goodness, especially during this season. I know we're going through a weird time in the world, but we love you. If you need anything, connect with us. Talk to us, respond to us, tell us what we can do to help you. There's a lot of people, like I said, there's a lot of people this week that I've talked to. It's not even about coronavirus. There are people going through all kinds of difficult things and just being cooped up in their home all the time is kind of just exacerbating it and making it worse to some degree. So check on people, love people, reach out to people who are having a hard time uh, believing and are struggling with faith the same way the resurrected Jesus went to doubting Thomas and to Peter who had denied him. Go to your friends, go to your family, talk to them about the Lord, encourage them. Be a source of love, be a source of faith in the world, be a source of joy and peace in these hard times and pray for one another. We love you. God bless you. Happy Resurrection Sunday. We'll see you again soon.